Before I uh, get into the homily, I want to cover, like, well, explain to you the covering of the statues. Uh, everybody always freaks out about the covering of the statues. It's like, why do we do that? And the school kids freaked out about it. Everybody's like, what's going on? You know, like, that's the point. It's supposed to be jarring, right? You're supposed to walk in and be like, something's wrong. Because we've gotten to the fifth week of Lent, so we're getting closer and closer and closer to the passion, right, of Jesus, in which everything is taken away. Beauty itself is taken away. And so as we move through the weeks of Lent, we lose more and more things. That's why we've lost the piano, more or less. We've lost the organ, more or less. We've lost our statues now. And eventually we're going to strip the entire altar as things slowly go away. There's another reason, though, that they're covered. They're covered because we know that there's not supposed to be covered. So we sit back and we look at them and we're like, that's wrong. It shouldn't be like that. Just too as in our own lives, right? There's certain things that happen, tragedy. And we're like, it shouldn't be like that. And that we will unveil the statues and the cross. Just as at the end of time, God will pull the veil back. And we will see everything distinctly as it should be seen. And it's not that bad. People make a big deal out of it. It's not that bad. You know, in Germany a couple hundred years ago, they used to veil the whole sanctuary. I mean, imagine if I dropped the curtain down and covered everything. Then everybody would be mad. We just cover a few statues. And so remember that for next year, because I don't want to have to explain it again. <laughs> On the fifth Sunday of Lent, we have a very unique character. A strange character, actually. This woman, this sinful woman, this adulterous woman. She is caught, as it says, in the very act of adultery. Let that sink in a little bit. Let that resonate in your mind. What would have actually happened for them to catch her in the very act of adultery? Here's the thing. It had to have been a setup. They don't care about this woman. They don't care about the sin. All they care about is catching Jesus in the act of blasphemy. I don't, you know, like, I don't think we get the shock and value of what this would have been like. I've always wanted, like, one, just to surprise you guys, one fifth Sunday of Lent. As I'm just doing this, talk, all of a sudden, these doors fly open and a girl gets pushed through and there's like 20 guys screaming and yelling and cussing and they throw her down in front of everybody. And then I thought, like, I probably wouldn't be pastor after that. <laughs> but just to somehow recreate the power of this scene, it would have been horrific. I mean, she's caught in the act of adultery, so she's probably barely clothed they're pushing her through the streets. She's trying to preserve what dignity she has left. She's terrified because she knows. She knows what the end game of this is. It's her death. The reason I think the whole thing is a setup is a couple reasons. Number one, where's the man? 
Moses said that they're both supposed to be stoned to death, not just the woman. So where's the man? What, did they just turn a blind eye? Let him sneak away? Or did they actually pay him to set her up so they could catch her and bring her before Jesus? It seems clearly intended to lure Jesus into this moment when he publicly has to disagree with Moses. And if he publicly disagrees with Moses, that means he disagrees with God, which is blasphemy, which is punishable by death. But this is why I love Jesus. Because, right, they throw him down there like, Moses said we're supposed to do this. What do you say, Rabbi? And Jesus, this is why I love Jesus. This is why I follow him, man. Because, like, he doesn't even, he doesn't even acknowledge him. He's like, I'm not playing the game, boys. And he just reaches down and he starts, he just, it's weird. This is a super intense situation and Jesus just draws in the sand. What did he draw? What did he write? We'll never know that until the veil of this world is pulled back. But I got a, there's a few, few guesses. My, my guess is, it's probably wrong because it's my guess, but I think he just wrote the name of the man. That would be enough, right? Everybody would be like, how does he know that? Some people think that maybe he wrote the sins of the, the men in the crowd that had brought her. I just heard one a, a couple months ago. I don't, I don't know. We're, we're, we're terrible at scripture as Catholics. But somebody said maybe he wrote mene, three words, mene, tekal, and perez. Raise your hand if you have any idea what I'm talking about. Anybody? No hands? No nothing? See, this is why people accuse us of being terrible with the scriptures. It's from Daniel chapter 5. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king in the Babylonian exile, he has taken all of the treasures from the temple treasury in Jerusalem. He has them all, and he throws this big party, and he decides to bring out all of those. It would be like this. It would be like, I don't know, some atheist, you know, robbed our church and took my chalice and then had a party with all of his buddies and, like, pulled out my chalice and started taking shots with it. Something that was dedicated to God, they were making a mockery of. It is in that moment that a hand appears. Now, I don't know what this actually looked like, but the only thing I could think of, you remember the Adams family? <laughs> thing? <laughs> this is what I would have guessed it was. This hand, it says, just a hand appeared. And it writes on the wall, Mene, Tekal, and Perez. These three words, if you want to know exactly what they mean, go home as a good Catholic and read Daniel chapter 5. But basically what God is saying through these three words to Nebuchadnezzar is, you have taken something that is mine and make a, made a mockery of it. Your time is limited. And I'm going to take your kingdom and give it to somebody else. Now fast forward that and Jesus writes these three words in the sand. The the elders of Israel would have known exactly what he was doing because that hand was God's hand. If he's tracing those words, what's he saying? I'm God. And the second thing he's saying is, you have taken a vessel that is sacred to me, this woman, and made a mockery of her. Your time is limited, and I'm going to take your power and give it to somebody else. Hmm? 
you guys, you guys never look like, you should be like, dude, that's awesome. The, the, the connection is huge. But whatever he wrote, it had to have meant something because it shocked this group that brought this woman to him. And then he stands up, right? And he says those words that pierce the heart of not only the whole crowd, but of every one of us. Let him who does, has no sin cast the first stone. It's this tension between the crowd and the Christ. And he just silences them. I don't know if you ever heard that joke, right? <clears throat> Jesus is standing there and he says, let him who without sin cast the first stone. And all of a sudden a rock hits the woman. And he's like, mom. <laughs> Whatever it was, it pierced their hearts and it pierces each one of us. And suddenly they're no longer this crowd bound together to rival Jesus. They're just individual sinners. Just like she is. The whole point of this story is she can receive mercy. They can't. Why? Because she's in a place of poverty. She's got nowhere else to turn. Her life is on the line. And then Jesus looks down at her and he says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And again, woman was a very... It was a, a beautiful term back in the ancient world. It would have been more akin to like, young lady, has no one condemned you? I don't condemn you either. Jesus looks at her and loves her. He doesn't excuse the sin. He doesn't try to get rid of the sin. The sin has been torture enough for her. He wants her to be free. God wants you to be free. If you can't see the sacrament of confession here, you are blind. It is a face-to-face -face encounter where, where the woman has to admit to her sin, Jesus forgives her, and she's free. Okay, here's another question. Don't let me down. <laughs> Tradition holds that this woman was who? Mary. Mary Magdalene. Good, I feel better. <clears throat> this is Mary Magdalene. The one who stood with him all the way to the end. Why? Why is she the last one at the cross? Because he stood with her when she was about to die. And when Jesus forgives her, he, she, she experiences his mercy. And that allows her to experience his love. And once he experiences her love, and she experiences his, she will never leave him. You see, that's why I think so many people are leaving the church. Because nobody experiences mercy anymore. There's a saying right now, everything is allowed in this world and nothing is forgiven. People are missing the power of Christ because they're missing 
forgiveness. Until you're forgiven, you don't know his love. And if you don't know his love, you won't stand by him. What made Mary so powerful. You know know what her title is? The Apostle to the Apostles. She is the strongest of them all. Whenever anybody says that the church is anti the feminine, I'm like, you're crazy. You don't know the honor that we give to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And you don't know how powerful Mary Magdalene was. Two women... One man at the cross. Because they knew his love. And why does John there? What do we call John? The beloved apostle. He knew the love too. When you know Christ's love, there is no cross that is too strong for you to endure. That's why they could stand there. But they knew it first because of mercy. When, when Mary Magdalene looks into the eyes of Jesus, is that crowd walks away, she knows the mercy and forgiveness of God, and when she looks up at the cross and sees him giving his life for her, then she knows his love. And when those two combine, there is nothing that can stop the human heart. Nothing. And so my encouragement for you this week is to realize that we're not so distant from this woman in the gospel. She's you. We're her. She's the Christian story. From incredible sinner to immensity and sanctity. The the greatest of the saints. And that's all of our call. Because when you know his love, you'll never leave him. There's a little known poet from Cork, Ireland. His name is E.S. Barrett. And he wrote this in reference to Mary Magdalene. Short little poem. Not she... Not she with traitorous kiss her Savior stung. Not she denied him with unholy tongue. She, while apostles shrank, could danger brave, last at his cross, first at his grave. When we live as she lived, we will truly understand the power of his mercy and the power of his love. And with these two things in our heart, it will change everything.